Ourselves Black is a place where we own the narrative and are unapologetic about our goal, to share imagery, information, and stories infused with knowledge that promotes black mental health. This is the Ourselves Black podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Y. Vincent. On today's episode of Ourselves Black podcast, part two of a two-part series on addiction and black mental health with guest expert, Dr. Nzinga Harrison. A well-respected physician and educator, Dr. Harrison is the Chief Medical Officer for Anca Behavioral Health, Inc. She earned her bachelor's degree in biology with Spanish and chemistry minors at Howard University, completed medical school at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine, and general psychiatry residency at Emory University. She is board certified in adult general psychiatry and addiction medicine. She is co-founder of Physicians for Criminal Justice Reform and currently serves as campaign psychiatrist for the Let's Get Mentally Fit campaign. She is the wife of a stock market investor and mother to two sons aged 11 and 13. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Ourselves Black podcast. We have as a repeat guest, Dr. Nzinga Harrison. Um, If you heard her first show on addiction, it's probably part of why you're back to hear her again today. If you haven't, you definitely want to check that out uh, because it'll have some complimentary information to the things that we're going to discuss on today's show. Dr. Harrison, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me back. So in part one, we talked about addiction more generally and as as a disease and some of the biology and the language we use around addiction. Um, And in this show, we want to pay more attention to special considerations in black mental health and in the black community. Um, so, Dr. Harrison, could you could you start off with, with speaking to that and some of your initial thoughts on that topic? Yes. So, uh, I think a general idea is that there are higher rates of addiction in uh, black populations or especially black populations that have um, lower income levels. And in some ways that may be correct, but in other ways that is uh, – more uh, kind of a misunderstanding. So if if we get into kind of how common addiction is in black populations, I'll just tell you, in general, about half of black people have used an illicit drug, including marijuana. So that's any drug that's either against the law or um, a medication that you have gotten not from a doctor. Um, and used, you know, not according to prescription. Um, The same is true of whites. So if you look across all income levels, anybody age 12 years old and up, it's about the same. It's about half and half. If you look at the specific substances um, that are being used, then it does break down somewhat differently. So this might actually surprise you. Um, Only about 1 in 10 people are using cocaine, black people, about 12%, whereas about 20% of whites are using cocaine. Um, When you look at crack, it's only about 60% of blacks. And the reason I'm using the word only, even though those are significant numbers, is because if you look at the media and you Mm -hmm. watch TV, then you listen to the radio, you watch the news, then the images you see of black people are overwhelmingly black people um, smoking crack, committing crimes, using drugs, being drunk, right? And so this Mm -hmm. is such a pervasive image that the media gives us when that is not the majority of what our population is doing. And 
and it also is not even that different from what other races are doing, although you don't see those images coming through about those other races. And so the first thing, I don't want to undermine the importance of recognizing addiction because addiction is a fatal disease and it doesn't only kill the person involved, it really spreads out and kills kind of the family and support system around that person. So if you feel like a person that you know uh, or care about it is experiencing symptoms of addiction, I want you to recognize that, but I also want you to recognize that's not the majority of black people um, are not experiencing this illness. And I think that's such a great point because it underscores the fact that the rates in terms of usage are actually pretty similar, pretty but similar. the consequences are what can be markedly different. Absolutely, absolutely. And so we know for sure, even though cocaine and crack are the same drug, um, so do you just, I don't have to get into the science of it, but do a little chemical process and you turn the powder cocaine into crack rocks. But it is literally the same drug that works in the same part of the brain causing the same type of symptoms, and you can get addicted to both. And yet, because cocaine is more commonly used by whites, this is the perception anyway, the, the numbers are relatively close, and crack is more commonly used by blacks, the legal consequences of having a small amount of crack do not even compare to having like a trafficking amount of cocaine. Uh, and then when you look at the legal consequences, even just having to make it to court, having to pay bail, um, having to pay a lawyer, or uh, using public defender, when you look at the socioeconomics, so the income differences, then those um, consequences stack up harder on black people than they do on white people. And then, like we said in part one, when we talked about shame and stigma driving relapse to addiction, guess what else drives it? Stress, involvement mm -hmm. with the criminal justice system, decreased opportunities as a result of criminal history when those folks really should have been diverted to a treatment setting rather than a criminal setting. And so all of these things that make the day-to-day -day stress of life higher actually increase the risk that a person will relapse to a substance use disorder, which of course increases the risk that they get more consequences and then you see how that feedback loop happens. And we know that those are those external structures that impose these disparities. Um, and we talked some about this in the first show about language and how we think about things, um, but there's also ways that stigma around mental illness or mental health treatment could lead to people being at higher uh, risk for problematic substance use because they're trying to self-medicate. Absolutely, absolutely. And so this is really something that we have to work on all people, all races have to work on this, but especially as black people, we have to work on this. Um, you know, religion flows very deeply through the black community, and there is a misconception that somehow religion and mental health treatment are diametrically opposed when, in fact, they go hand in hand. And so spirituality and connection to a higher power is like one of the basic principles of uh, addiction recovery. Um, being connected to other people, 
being in a nurturing environment, feeling like you have a higher purpose, feeling like that there's something bigger than you out there is absolutely connected to mental health. And so as black folks, we have to get away from this idea that you can't tell people you feel depressed. You can't tell people you're having anxiety attacks. You can't tell people you thought about killing yourself. You can't tell people that you know you're drinking too much. You can't tell people that you know you're smoking so much marijuana because you're stressed out. All of these are so very common. And so I'll, I'll back up just a bit and say, whereas addiction is the minority, right? So we're really looking at probably 6% of folks that have addiction to an illicit drug. If you go to alcohol, the number will get higher into the double digits. But if you look at people who are at risk, because they're misusing alcohol or misusing an illicit substance, even though it hasn't met the threshold to be called addiction, if we could reduce the stigma of going to somebody for your depression, going to somebody for your anxiety, going to somebody for your marijuana use, which you know is too much, going to somebody for your alcohol use, which you know is too much, if we could capture that group of people, we could reduce the impact of addiction on our community because we could get to it before it gets severe. So think of it like your monthly mammogram, right? Nobody wants to have breast cancer get diagnosed in the final stages and they say, there's nothing we can do because you waited too long. And so what do people do? They go to the doctor, they get their mammogram every year, they get breast exam by their doctor so that you can catch it early. The same thing with asthma, right? You don't wait until you literally pass out and are almost dead and an ambulance has to come get you. When you start wheezing and you can't take a bit, you go to a doctor. Same thing when your child has a cold. When they get a fever, you try to take care of it a couple of days. It doesn't get better. You take them to the doctor. And so I want us to adopt that same kind of thinking process around the symptoms that come from our brain. So your heart tells you it's having trouble, chest pain. Your lungs tell you it's having trouble, I can't breathe. Your belly tells you it's having trouble, you get diarrhea or you throw up. Your brain tells you it's having trouble because you feel depressed or you get anxious or you start drinking more or you start smoking more. And so if we can recognize and respond to those symptoms the same way we recognize and respond to our physical symptoms, we could get ahead of the ball of addiction. And so what are some concrete things people should be on the lookout for either in themselves or in loved ones that lets them know they're in that gray zone for this becoming a problem? Yes. So I always tell people, if you think to yourself, is this a problem? Then it probably is a problem. And that doesn't mean full-blown diagnosis of addiction, but that means something needs to change, right? Um, and so specifically what you're looking for if you used to drink a glass of wine on Fridays or Saturdays when you were out with your girls and now you're drinking a glass of wine every night and now you're drinking two glasses of wine every night and now you're at work and you can't wait to get home because you need that wine to, un to, to unwind, then when you start seeing an escalation in how much you're using or if you start seeing an escalation in how much someone around you is using, then that's a sign that you may need to jump in and try to address something before it turns into a full-blown addiction. The same thing with smoking cigarettes. You used to only smoke cigarettes when you were at a party, and now you're buying your own pack of cigarettes. Um, the same thing with marijuana. 
you used to just get a dime bag on the weekend and now or you'd never even had a dealer because that doesn't fit your lifestyle and now you're looking for somebody that can give you regular access to marijuana. Um, the same thing with depression and anxiety, even though we're talking about addiction here, depression and anxiety will lead you to addiction. So you're not enjoying things the way you used to. You don't want to hang out with the people you used to want to hang out with. Uh, you don't find meaning in your life the way you used to. These are all the symptoms that are letting you know something is going on that needs to change. Um, and you try to get to it early, like I said, before you get into the the later stages of trouble. And that's all helpful information about yourself and, and the ability to kind of look inward. If there's someone that you're concerned about and that person doesn't seem to be concerned yet, you know, people can often feel sort of hamstrung around this, like what can you do if they don't see it as a problem yet? Thank um, you Thank you for asking this question. And so um, this is part of being human, right? Other people can recognize that you're struggling before you're struggling. And mm -hmm. that goes across a lot of different things, not just depression, anxiety, addiction. And so the very, very, very first thing that I say, if you're concerned about someone you love, first of all, look for compassion, right? So the symptoms of addiction can really be very hurtful to the people around you. And even before it's fully addiction, you just think to yourself, why can't they just stop? Or why don't mm -hmm. they just do this different? Or why would they do this, right? Go back to part one and find the compassion remembering that something about the biology of their brain pathways is not functioning correctly right now. And so the very first thing is like, okay, I think there might be an issue here. If I thought this was cancer, how would I approach this person? Because cancer generates a lot of compassion. Once you generate that compassion, the second step is to get support for yourself first. So even if you're not experiencing these symptoms, these symptoms are being experienced, someone you love, care about, someone um, that you otherwise, you know, feel like you need to make some sort of intervention, get support for yourself first. So that support is you can go to drugabuse.gov, um, there's tons of information there, right? You say, I think this might be a problem. You can look at the symptom list on there and stack the person you're concerned about against that symptom list so that you can feel good like, yep, okay, I wasn't just thinking there's a problem. This objective information actually tells me, yes, there's probably a problem. Go to other people who know that person. And, you know, you're not approaching them in a gossipy, putting people's business out in the street. You're going to them and saying, listen, I'm really concerned about this person. Are you concerned about this person? Most often the answer is, yeah, this is what I noticed. This is what I noticed. You compare your notes and you help that person generate their compassion. And then after you've got your compassion and you've got your support in place, then you can approach that person and you approach that person from a point of compassion. You know what? I was really worried about you. I did some research on it. This is what they said the symptoms were. This is what I'm kind of seeing in you. I would like to help you get some help. What can we do? Right? So when you don't approach it from something is wrong with you, you're a drug addict, you got to make better choices, then the information can often be received um, more effectively. But then here's the last step of it. Sometimes it doesn't work. 
Right. And you have to be able to accept, right, you have to be able to accept that part of this illness is the thoughts and the emotions and the decisions and the behaviors of that person. Like all of those come from the brain and this is an illness of the brain. And so you have to be able to accept that it might not work and then you wrap back around to number one, which is compassion, and number two, which is get support for yourself. As the consequences start to mount, that will drive the motivation for this person to be able to see that there's a problem, but other people get there before the person with addiction gets there, and you have to get support for yourself so that you don't internalize those symptoms um, and, you know, start putting yourself at risk. So here's where I want to give a plug for Al-Anon and Naranon, okay? Al-Anon is for family members, loved ones, support systems of people with alcoholism, and Naranon is for family member support systems um, of people who have other drug addictions. These are support meetings where people who are going through the same thing can be there to support you, and I highly encourage, even if your loved one can't see that they're in active addiction, is not anywhere near getting treatment, you get support for yourself so that you can protect yourself from the collateral damage. Dr. Harrison, thank you so much for lending your uh, expertise and your time um, to this topic and, and for this this platform. I sincerely hope that people continue this dialogue in their families and their communities. Um, if they want to reach out to you about being a part of that dialogue, what's the best way for them to do that? So the absolute best way to get to me is through my website, which is nzingaharrisonmd.com. Um, but and I actually do laugh every time I say this because it feels narcissistic coming from a psychiatrist, but you can just Google me. Um, so if you Google N-V-I-N-G-A Harrison MD, um, then all of that, that website and some other information will come up. But you can also find me on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And thank you so much again. And I just wanted to remind people, we plugged it at the beginning, of this show, but we also have a part A uh, where Dr. Harrison talks about addiction as well, so I definitely encourage you to check that out too.